Thank you, Richard, and uh, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, let's see, for starters, I must confess that I'm a bit of a uh, last-minute entrant uh, into this race. Uh, my uh, colleague, Paul Shields, was scheduled to speak here, and uh, he notified me yesterday that he would be unable to attend. So <clears throat> if you see me staring uh, into the slides as if I'm trying to divine what the intent and specifically what the speaking, uh, the speaking notes may have been by the person who created that slide. That's exactly what I'm doing. Um, if, if Paul had told me how many people had been here, uh, were, were going to be here, I don't think I would have accepted, but uh, let me just uh, record this so I can uh, make sure to get even with Paul later. So let's see. Everyone say, uh, hi, Paul. Thank you very much. All right. So without, uh, without further ado, uh, as Richard mentioned, I'm a data protection lawyer. Uh, I am based here despite my accent. Uh, I've been here for a couple years. Um, and uh, I'm going to be talking about the cloud uh, and, and some regulation. I'd like to start off um, by giving just some observations about where we came from, uh, from the cloud. Uh, as Richard mentioned, uh, before becoming a lawyer, uh, I was in technical roles uh, for about 10 years. Uh, in 2000, uh, along with some, some other uh, friends of mine, we started a, uh, a cloud computing service, which at the time we didn't call a cloud computing service. Uh, we called it an email filtering service, and it was called FrontBridge Technologies. Uh, I it was eventually the, the director of network uh, network uh, uh, network operations uh, for the uh, for the company, and just to give you an idea of how that uh, that developed from a technology standpoint um, relative to how you would build a technology company now. When we started, we had two servers, and that was in uh, 2000, and essentially the service was that. We would filter email that came in. We, we would take a company's email and route it through our network, and we'd pull out spam and viruses. Pretty simple service. Uh, and as I said, we started with, uh, with two servers. As our client base grew, we would go out and buy new servers, um, and we would buy them in chunks of 10, 20, eventually 50, and, and more. And over the course of that next five years, we grew that to about 1,000 servers uh, when we were acquired by Microsoft. And our process for managing that and growing our network was that we would buy these big chunks of servers, we'd have them delivered to our headquarters, we'd image them, uh, we'd get them ready for production, and then we'd send them out to a data center. And then someone uh, would get on a plane, they'd go out to the data center, they'd install these servers, uh, and when something broke, if it was bad enough, we'd have to send somebody out on a plane back out there uh, to fix it. And that was a massive cost, uh, that investment, those investments in servers, uh, especially for, for a, growing, uh, a growing business. Uh, <clears throat> today, you would be crazy uh, to start that sort of business uh, by buying your own servers. Because there are companies out there like Microsoft and Google and Amazon uh, who have made that such a low-cost proposition. Uh, the other thing that we struggled with as we started uh, were spikes in traffic. Uh, if there was a massive spam uh, outbreak, 
we had what the capacity that we had. If we had 500 servers out there and we needed 501, we were out of luck. Today with cloud computing, uh, you can architect it such that your computing resources scale on demand. So when that demand goes up, the cloud computing service scales uh, accordingly. So around the time that we were starting our company, much larger consumer services were flourishing, uh, specifically uh, Hotmail, Google, Amazon. And those companies were all looking for ways to deal with those massive spikes in traffic, managing those big data center assets. And so they invested in virtualization and uh, server automation and data center automation. And once they, once they um, developed good practices uh, for these things, they then turned their attention to start to commercialize these and offer them to everybody else. They have these massive investments, lots of servers, lots of automation. Uh, why not offer it uh, to, uh, to businesses and consumers uh, so that they can leverage uh, those investments? So cloud computing is also bringing us to uh, a transition, to, to bring, bring us the ability to transition seamlessly uh, between devices. So for example, today, I use a program called OneNote on my PC, uh, on my tablet, and on my phone. I use it as a bit of a filing system. So I go in, I make a change on one. Anytime I'm connected, it goes up, makes that change on the server, and the next time if I open it on a different device, I'm looking at exactly the same thing. That's part of the magic uh, of cloud computing. Uh, the, the key uh, to that is connectivity, and I think that over the next decade, uh, we'll see more and more cheaper and more pervasive connectivity uh, that will allow consumers especially uh, to take advantage uh, of cloud computing. So how many of you have a generator at home? That's what, that's what I expected, and why not? You do, all right. You're not in central London. All right. Uh, you don't because you expect the electricity to be on, and generally it is. How many of you have an external hard drive or a USB thumb drive? Most of you. I think by 2020, that will be hardly any of you. And the reason is, just like the generator, you will come to expect and be able to rely on cloud computing as that storage device. You won't need this external drive uh, as your backup because you will have that reliability and security uh, of, uh, of cloud computing. So the economic benefits uh, of cloud computing are massive. Uh, advertising revenue uh, provides a plethora of free and, and useful services to consumers, and businesses uh, are able to lower both their capital expenditures and their operational expenditures uh, by leveraging the economies of scale of cloud computing. So what are some of our challenges? Well, building trust is a major challenge. Uh, organizations especially are reluctant to give up control over their data, uh, over how it's secured. Uh, and it, it, was, it was easier uh, in the outsourcing days uh, for organizations uh, to give that up because when they entered into an outsourcing agreement, uh, they essentially told their vendor exactly how they wanted things managed. Uh, 
they provided their policies and procedures, and the vendor would just follow, follow the book. That's no longer the case. Um, part of the ways we get to the economies of scale uh, for cloud computing is by standardization. So a cloud computing platform works the same for everyone who's on that platform, rather than having different constraints, requirements, and policies and procedures between uh, individual consumers of that service. So that's one challenge. Uh, we also believe that, that transparency uh, and adoption of, of and promotion of verifiable standards for cloud computing uh, will, will be key to building that trust. For instance, how can c customers get past concerns that their cloud provider, if their cloud provider won't tell them where they're storing their data, who has access to the data, uh, and how it's being protected? We think transparency uh, is key and that that will continue to develop. <coughs> Further, this transparency and those policies and procedures ought to be verifiable by a third party, and which is why we're, we're supportive uh, of standards that, uh, that rely on that third, those third party uh, certifications. Next up is reliability. I know it's first on the slide, but it's next in my notes. Uh, Reliability, back to the generator, uh, back to the generator example, reliability is key. If people think that uh, a service is going to go away or that their data is going to be lost, they're not going to use it, whether that's individuals uh, or organizations. Uh, and I believe that by the end of the, uh, of the decade, we will be at a point where cloud computing is considered uh, very much in the same realm as uh, a public utility. Uh, hopefully it won't be regulated to the same extent. Uh, but I think from a reliability standpoint, it, it will be thought of that way. And I recognize that there have been outages from time to time from various cloud services. But keep in mind that those outages are how the cloud providers learn how to avoid having that happen in the future. And eventually it, it will be that reliable and bulletproof uh, service that people um, can depend on. Uh, the regulatory landscape for cloud computing is, is especially challenging. In Europe, these challenges revolve largely around data protection issues. Uh, the directive, the data protection directive was adopted back in 1995, uh, and trying to fit cloud computing into it is a bit of a uh, square peg into a round hole, uh, especially in the area of, of cross-border transfers. Uh, additionally, another uh, problem with the directive is that uh, 27 different member states have Implemented, implemented it 27 different ways. So if you're an organization who wants to offer a cloud service, uh, you have to recognize and, and, and take into consideration uh, 24 different sets uh, of obligations, some of which overlap, some of which conflict, and, and largely most of them are consistent. But when you have outlying issues, uh, it creates an operational problem. There are vertical regulations at the national level uh, as well uh, for such industries such as healthcare, financial services, and uh, public sector procurement. And I'll touch on those in just a moment. <coughs> so to, to jump into the weeds a bit on, on some of the data protection issues around uh, cloud computing, in EU data protection law, there's a key distinction that's made between data controllers and, and data processors. Uh, one of the issues that comes up in, in cloud computing is is the distinction of, of, of who holds uh, which role. Now, a controller 
is supposed to be the, the entity who, has, who determines both the purpose and the means uh, for data processing. The processor uh, essentially following the controller's instructions with some scope to determine uh, the means for data processing. And European regulators, luckily, have been, and thus far, have been relatively pragmatic in recognizing that for cloud-based services, they're standard services, and, <clears throat> and th the provider of that service is going to have a lot of control and input over how the data is protected, how the data is used, uh, and where it's transferred, et cetera, and instead have focused on ensuring that there is transparency between the provider and the consumers of those services um, to get their agreement on those points. However, when a cloud provider starts to look, a cloud provider may start to look more like uh, a data controller uh, if they start to do things with uh, their customers' data for their own purposes. For instance, if you were hosting email and you began to mine uh, uh, your, your customer's email uh, to provide uh, advertising profiles, uh, that would start to look more like uh, a data controller uh, entity. Another issue that comes up is data processing agreements for cloud services. This is a requirement in Europe. When you sign up with a data processor uh, as a data controller, you're obligated to enter into a data processing agreement. Uh, it has to, it essentially details uh, what the cloud provider is going to do with the data, how they're going to protect it, uh, and an obligation not to deviate uh, from the uh, controller's instructions. Location of data and cross-border transfers uh, of data have been continuing uh, topic of debate around cloud uh, computing. So why does cloud computing raise these issues? Well, and why can't data just remain in a given country? Well, for large providers like Microsoft, Amazon, Google, et cetera, we use things like follow the sun support models where we have support individuals around the world uh, at times uh, that make sense for them to be awake. Uh, and we have escalation paths to people who have key expertise in different markets. And they need to be able to access this data. Access is a transfer under European data protection law. <clears throat> and so the, the logistics uh, really necessitate uh, that data be accessed uh, from outside in some circumstances. And there, have, there are a few approaches to, to dealing with this for transfers to the U.S. There's safe harbor. Uh, there are also uh, the standard contractual clauses. Uh, and, and that's actually something that Microsoft for a couple years now has been using. Uh, and the, the standard contractual clauses work to a, certain to a certain degree. And luckily, again, regulators have been very pragmatic and how those are applied uh, in the context of cloud computing. Um, but they're not 100% fit. It, it, they, they still feel awkward. Uh, but nonetheless, it's been good to have uh, support from regulators and, and actually to see some of our competitors follow suit. We think that's a good endorsement uh, that the model is working at least to some degree. We're encouraged uh, by the Article 29 Working Party's uh, decision on, <coughs> pardon me, on binding corporate rules uh, for processors. Uh, we think that long term that may be uh, a, very, uh, a very good path for large uh, cloud computing providers uh, to go down. Um, both the Article 29 Working Party and recent uh, ICO uh, guidance on cloud computing uh, 
uh, have been uh, very realistic. Um, they acknowledge some of the difficulties, and um, additionally, they provide some useful uh, checklists to use when purchasing uh, cloud services. So standards and certification, uh, I touched on this a bit earlier. Uh, we think these are really key to building, uh, to building that trust uh, for uh, cloud customers. Now there's current standards such as ISO 27001, uh, SSAE 16, which is formerly SAS 70, um, and these have been very helpful uh, in uh, getting regulators on board, in getting customers comfortable uh, with the practices uh, of cloud, uh, cloud providers. We can have third-party auditors come in, audit against these known standards. But there's also organizations like the Cloud Security Alliance uh, that are working to create more cloud-specific uh, certification schemes. And indeed, the European Commission in their uh, cloud, uh, their cloud uh, policy paper have advocated for uh, industry uh, certifications. And we think this is an area where we'll see a lot more development uh, throughout the rest of the decade. Uh, and not only will it help to build trust with customers, but we think this will also help streamline the monitoring and enforcement of compliance for regulators. If they know that you have a, uh, a, a third-party audit uh, to a certain standard uh, by a reputable auditor, um, it makes it much easier for them to focus on uh, organizations that don't, frankly. Uh, audit. Uh, audit is an issue that, that comes up on a regular basis uh, with customers, especially organizational customers uh, for cloud computing. Again, this kind of goes back to the, uh, to the uh, outsourcing days where it was quite common uh, in an outsourcing agreement that you would have a right to audit. Go in and audit the facilities, uh, the policies and procedures uh, of your vendor. Uh, <clears throat> that's no longer the case with cloud computing. And it can be a challenge to get customers of cloud computing over that hump. Uh, there are a couple reasons for this. Uh, one is, one, there's, there's little value uh, in somebody actually walking through one of our data centers. There's very few people that actually work at the data center. They're automated, large warehouses that are very cold. I've been in them. Uh, and there's, there's little to see uh, from an audit standpoint. Two, to have a physical audit of a facility like that actually creates risk. The more people you have walking through a data center, the more chance you have of, of malicious acts and, frankly, of accidents, people tripping over things. <coughs> Finally, it's not logistically uh, and, and financially practical. The economic it cuts into the economic benefits of the cloud dramatically if each individual customer of a cloud provider has the ability to, to go in and audit them. If, if you think about tens of thousands of customers, um, each with an individual audit right, you'd have to set up a separate organization uh, to manage uh, your, your auditing. And luckily, uh, both customers uh, and regulators ha have recognized this, and, and this approach has really been uh, endorsed by uh, both the Article 29 Working Party <coughs> their paper on cloud, uh, as well as the ICO guidance uh, on cloud. Finally, a, uh, a US-based uh, based company speaking in Europe can't talk about the cloud without talking about the Patriot Act. Um, 
we have these conversations on a regular basis with our customers. I'm sure I'm sure our competitors have uh, have similar conversations. There, there's really little to say about this other than that organizations have to comply with law where they're based. Uh, and that's true for us, it's true for Amazon, it's true for Google, it's true for Facebook. Wherever you are, uh, you have to comply with law. And in it, it's funny it's funny to me <coughs> how much attention the Patriot Act uh, gets when many, uh, in fact, most other uh, other countries around the world have similar powers. These, these powers are exercised through the review of court. There has to be a reasonable basis to uh, enforce these powers. And uh, it is what it is. I mean, it, if you haven't read through RIPA here, go take a look at that and, and tell me if you have questions about, about the Patriot Act. Uh, I think there is a visceral reaction to it, and thus far uh, we've been able to uh, to get through those discussions with the customers that have that visceral reaction. I can certainly understand it from a public sector standpoint that you wouldn't want <coughs> you wouldn't want your state secrets stored uh, in a cloud computing environment that another government could get at. But frankly, you shouldn't want your state secrets stored with some third-party cloud anyway, I wouldn't think. Certainly not a public cloud. Uh, so that's, uh, <laughs> that's it on the, uh, on the Patriot Act. I, I'd also point out that if you read many of both uh, the, the legal articles out, out there, uh, the, the, some of the journal articles on Patriot Act, <coughs> some of the articles done by uh, UK firms, uh, other uh, European firms, uh, as well as the guidance from the ICO, They've all essentially said, "Calm down. It's not. It's not this dramatic difference for uh, a U.S. company versus uh, a company here." Uh, so I just want to touch on a couple examples of of how cloud and, and regulation have uh, have played out, and and to start with, uh, the first example I'd like to touch on is the uh, the G Cloud uh, framework. Not the name I would have chosen, uh, but it's uh, it's a, the UK public sector uh, has this framework in place uh, for purchasing uh, cloud services, and essentially they they set out to see how they could save money by leveraging the cloud, and they've gone through a couple iterations on this, and <coughs> they've taken a very practical approach, and that generally public sector procurement. Uh, the tendering process is very much a take-it-or-leave-it uh, process. Uh, you have lots of obligations, and if you want to be in, in the bidding, you accept the obligations or you don't play. Now, that was still very much the process in, in G Cloud. It was largely a take-it-or-leave-it uh, conversation. But they were pragmatic in what they put in those take-it-or-leave-it terms. They were not a bunch of custom things that they knew cloud providers couldn't do. Uh, they had a baseline set of data protection terms. Uh, they looked at ISO 27001 as baseline for security. Uh, they, took, they considered what data they would approve to be put into uh, cloud computing, which then lowered their standards, so only IL-2 data. And they agreed to rely on a third party uh, to audit uh, against that. 
so by taking these practical uh, measures while still getting protection and some certainty around how that data is, is going to be uh, protected, um, they're opening up uh, government uh, agencies, public bodies, uh, to get some real cost savings by leveraging the cloud. Now, it's been a bit of a different story with the FSA. Uh, for financial services, really all we have to go on right now is the FSA handbook that doesn't specifically address uh, cloud computing. Uh, now, there are some indications that the FSA is supportive of reasonable and uh, responsible adoption of cloud computing, but we don't have anything official yet. And so we're hoping that really over throughout the, the rest of the decade that not just the FSA, but other industry vertical <coughs> vertical regulators will come and work with cloud providers to address their concerns. If they, if they have concerns about how data is managed, let's work together and come up with something that they can then endorse and let those entities that they regulate know that it's safe to go down this path. And if not, let's find out what the gaps are uh, so we can address those. Finally, uh, the draft regulation. So uh, for those who don't know what I'm talking about here, <coughs> there's a draft general data protection regulation uh, that came out about a year ago, what's today? Almost a year ago today. That uh, is that aims to replace the data protection directive uh, for Europe. It has uh, a whole host of changes, uh, and there are both opportunities and um, and I think risks uh, with with many of these uh, with many of these changes. Uh, when I <laughs> this is the the one slide that I actually put together and. When I started with it, I had opportunities and concerns as separate headings. And frankly, it's, uh, it's tough to put them as separate because it really depends on what the outcome of each of these issues are. They're, they're one or the other, um, or, or both. Uh, we think it's great that there may eventually be one regulation uh, for, uh, for the EU. Uh, as a multinational uh, doing business in the EU, uh, there's a massive amount of complexity to make sure that we're complying with the way the directive is implemented uh, in 27 different member states. Uh, the one-stop shop uh, of working with one regulator uh, we think ha has, has some, some good promise so long as it's clarified and you can actually be sure that it is going to be a one-stop shop. Uh, we're certainly concerned with the amount of delegated acts, secondary legislation that the Commission um, reserved for itself uh, in its uh, original draft, and we'll see how that sorts out. Um, we want to make sure that the penalties are proportionate and that data protection authorities have uh, some uh, discretion in how they apply uh, penalties. Uh, there's certainly some, some questions around uh, consent. <coughs> consent is going to be much harder to uh, obtain if either the Commission or, or certainly uh, the, uh, the Parliament, based on their uh, draft report, uh, has its way. Uh, and to give you one example, uh, the, the EU Parliament uh, Committee just published a draft report uh, two weeks ago. One of the changes that they've proposed in this regulation is that a user's consent 
can't be the basis for processing if they're, uh, for the processing of their personal data if the controller is in a dominant position with regard to the service offered. So my question is, if I'm Facebook, what, what does that mean? How do I ever get consent of a user if I'm in the dominant position for, so, for a social media site, uh, yet I can't use consent for how I process uh, my user's data? Uh, there's an argument to say that maybe maybe legitimate interest, but they've tightened up uh, on that as well. So that is just one example of, I think, a risk um, and, and an opportunity for, for industry to continue to engage uh, with regulators. Uh, it's a gargantuan task to try to redo something uh, like, the, like the directive, uh, turn it into a regulation, and make it something that's going to last and be technology neutral enough to last for a decade or more, hopefully. Uh, so we're, we're continuing to, to work um, with the Commission, with Parliament uh, on that, and I'm sure that uh, many others uh, are as well. So we're hopeful uh, that issues like the one I just pointed out are, are addressed in the finalized regulation, and, and we think there are some great things that can come out of a harmonized approach. So uh, with that, um, I will leave you. Thank, oops. Thank you very much for your attention. Thanks very much. Thank you, Richard. Um, so yes, this session is looking at uh, the effect of t technology in the workplace. Um, as Richard mentioned, technology really has the power to transform how we work, uh, the way we manage our employees, what we expect of our employees. Um, there are huge potential benefits of technology. Um, flexible working is, is one that's bandied around quite a lot, an area where legislation is, is finally catching up with business practice. Um, technology, flexible working was first introduced in, in 2003 only for carers of children under six, but it's now been expanded to, uh, under current proposals, it'll be expanded to all employees of 26 weeks uh, service, um, and therefore big benefits potentially for motivating and retaining staff. Gives businesses flexibility in terms of where staff are based, um, you don't necessarily need your back office staff in the same place as your frontline staff. Benefits in service delivery with the use of Blackberries. Benefits in terms of increased employee engagement to give them visibility of how their performance affects business performance. And there have been quite a lot of studies that show where you have increased employee engagement, uh, you'll get higher levels of productivity. The flip side of that, the Trojan horse, if you like, of the, of, of the title, um, is there are quite a few challenges which technology in the workplace can bring. Um, one of the big ones is, are we seeing the, the boundaries between work life and private life being blurred? Are there implications for employee privacy? Um, does more flexibility and uh, freedom for employees uh, equate to a loss of control for employers? As data becomes more portable, is that a big risk for businesses? Um, and as the way we're working changes, and as technology changes the way we're working, what implications does that have for how employees work and, and health and safety considerations? There's actually quite a lot of research now into um, how technology, whilst making people more connected, is paradoxically making people more isolated, particularly people who work from home. There are obvious physical risks like RSI. 
Um, there's quite a lot of stuff on internet addiction at the moment. So um, some quite big issues to talk through. Um, joining me for the for this discussion, I'm very pleased we've got Mark Skilton, who's a global director at Capgemini. Uh, he's got lots of other appointments. He's an associate fellow at Warwick Business School, um, an expert on cloud computing and also how technology can be a driving force for innovation within the workplace. Um, and delighted to have the benefit of Mark's expertise and experience today. Um, and I also got uh, Catherine Dix, my fellow employment partner. Uh, Catherine covers all areas of employment law, but does have a particular interest in social media and how it affects the employment relationship. I thought I'd start by just asking Mark to, to give us some, some views on how technology um, potentially can impact work-life balance and capabilities. Thanks, Christopher. I, it's a really large topic, and I think um, the fact I'm just sitting here today with my iPad in front of you really sort of says it all in terms of the, the digital footprint that we create in our lives today. Um, within Capgemini, we've been doing some work with MIT um, uh, University, and they talk about digital innovation, digital transformation. And these are big words, they're not new words, but effectively, when we talk about really four things, we talk about social networks, the, the change from business processes to social processes. So whenever you go onto the internet, you're kind of in a weaving act, action of looking at a search engine, going to a site. The, the combination of how you interact with technology has changed in a social sense. The work at, just mentioned Warwick University around digital culture, how our culture is moving into a digital dimension, which I think is a very interesting aspect and very uh, emotive. We then talk about uh, mobility, the ability to take data with us, take our lives with us. And any of you who, who do work on uh, multiple time zones like I do, I just don't know if I, I, I kind of have to schedule when I'm going to sleep and I have to switch my iPhone off and then when I get up I switch it on again. Sounds a bit sad, but you know, you know the lifestyle I'm talking about. And so this idea of mobility is very much a modern genre of where, if you look at our children, their whole concept of how they do things is completely mobile. Third, third point I just want to make of four points is then really what we talk about is big data. Now, big data is a very big, big word at the moment, and we talk about big integration in Capgemini as well, about how do you integrate and how do you know what you're doing end-to-end -end with that data. We talk about data in silos, data at the edge of the cloud, all these sort of phrases, and then data analytics. Now, what does this all mean? And what it actually means is that really when we talk about exabytes of data in these big supplier cloud databases, we talk about masses of amounts of data out there. And with a recent one, I'm going to leave it to the next section of, of trust and security. We just look at the, use of the recent US bank attacks you may have read um, in December, which was a denial of service attack. You would think that the US banks, or indeed any banking system, would have an understanding of where their trust zones were, where is the security zones within their organization. But even they didn't know. And so the idea of where is the edge of the cloud, where is the edge of big data, is a big question in our time. And I'll put that thought in your heads for now. And just the final really point I just want to make is cloud businesses. Excellent presentation from Microsoft we just had. is really just another demonstration of the, the, the art of the possible of moving your business processes, your decisions, your operations. Recently, last night, we were just talking about um, cloud risk and supply chains, supplier risk in the cloud. So it's not just physical supply chains, but it's also digital supply chains now. So one of the key lessons to learn is who do we pick, who, who do we pick to have a partnership with in the cloud? Do we know who these partners are partnering with behind us? 
So there are lots of really questions, and as an employee, it kind of affects all of these decisions of where you are operating on a mobile or in the cloud or within your supply chain. Thanks, Mark. I mean, I think two of the, two of the big issues that stand out for me from that are sort of issues around sort of employee privacy, the fact that everything is, you know, online, um, accessible remotely, um, and sort of health and safety considerations, the, the requirement for employees to be always available, travel around different time zones, that kind of thing. So I thought if we'd look at sort of employee privacy first. Um, the starting point, which is not necessarily that well known, is that employees do have a, a right to privacy, not an absolute right, but they do have a right to privacy within the workplace. That derives from Article 8 of the European Convention on Human Rights, the right to respect for private and family life. Um, but as I say, it's not an absolute um, right, and I, I think one of the big issues that's already happening and we're going to get more of over coming years is the issue of where do you draw the line? Where can an employer take a legitimate interest in um, what an employee is doing in their, in their private life? How far can an employer go? Yeah, a couple of cases illustrate um, the issue quite nicely. I put them up on the slide. If you talk about the Gosden versus Lifeline project case first, that uh, was a case that involved an employee who was dismissed for having sent an email to a colleague, but it was sent outside work hours and sent from his home computer. And he challenged that um, and said it was to do with his, you know, it was a private matter, he shouldn't be dismissed for it. And the dismissal was found to be fair. Uh, the background gives you the reason why. This was a, um, an individual who worked with drug users in prisons. His email he sent was, was, was pretty offensive. Um, amongst other things, it encouraged British women to walk naked through the streets to encourage Muslim men to commit suicide. Um, he forwarded the email to a colleague in prison and has said that it was his duty to forward the email, the colleague's duty to forward the email. And therefore, because of that... Um, he was said to have lost his right to privacy, but it, nonetheless, he was dismissed for what was essentially a, a private matter. Similarly, in, in pay against the United Kingdom, um, we have an employee who was, he was dismissed effectively because of his hobby. Um, his hobby happened to be participating in bondage, domination and sadomasochism, but it was still a private matter, some might say. Um, it, it came to light um, because there were some photographs on the web and he was dismissed. And again, the dismissal was found to be fair. Uh, the reason the dismissal was found to be justified was firstly because he'd agreed to the photographs going up on the web, but also because his private life was felt to be partly relevant to his role, which was working as a probation officer with sex offenders. But I, I think both both cases show... You know the the extent to which actually there is quite a difficult um, balancing exercise. Although both dismissals were fair, and they were both about someone's private life, there were specific factors justifying it in both cases. In the Gosden case, you have an instruction to to forward the email, which was said to lose the privacy, and it was an offensive email. In the pay case, it was to do with the nature of the individual's job. But I think this is an issue that's going to grow and grow with you know, the current generation, you know, Generation Y, who are much more used to living their life online and have grown up with Facebook and put a lot more information out there, I think this is going to be much more of a live issue, how much employers can legitimately look at um, what, in, what people put on, about themselves online and, and take that into account in deciding how to deal with them at work. The corollary of that is um, how do you find out about all this stuff? Uh, if you're going to become aware of people's online activities, that's probably going to be 
uh, that's probably going to involve monitoring what they're doing um, more than might have happened in the past. Um, I mean, Catherine, perhaps that's something you can you can talk to a little bit. Yeah, I mean, certainly in terms of finding out what your employees are doing, but also in terms of things like workforce analytics that, that Mark was referring to before, that necessarily involves monitoring employees in a way that you weren't monitoring them previously. Um, and also things like homeworking. Um, you might even say, as an extreme example, the Verizon employee who was found to have outsourced his job recently to China is another prime example of why you should be monitoring <laughs> the use of IT systems. Um, and um, the other thing is, it's not necessarily on your own systems. Employees can now obviously access the internet on smartphones during office hours. Um, and also things like bring your own device means that, um, you know, it might not necessarily be on your own equipment. Um, so there's, uh, it also means that there's a potential access, potential for greater access um, to personal data um, where someone's using their own device but in a work context. So... When we're looking at that and we're looking at monitoring employees, what are the considerations for employers? The, the main one is obviously going to be the Data Protection Act. Um, and there is a, a session on that later, so I don't want to steal any of their thunder. But um, just looking at that from an employment context, um, the Information Commissioner um, has produced the Employment Practices Code, which is non-binding guidance, but which um, recommends that employers undertake an impact assessment when they are... Um, considering monitoring employees, which basically weighs up the risks for the employer versus the impacts on the employee in terms of their privacy and the access to personal data. Um, so the easiest way to justify uh, monitoring employees will be if you suspect there's criminal activity or um, some sort of breach of contract, something like that. Um, and I guess the other thing just to bear in mind on monitoring is that obviously if you're outsourcing um, you know, aspects of your IT, even aspects of your HR management, um, you're monitoring, uh, particularly in the context of sort of workforce analytics and that kind of thing, the monitoring may well be being done by a third party and you need to bear that in mind when you're contracting for that and also getting consent from employees or at least notifying employees that that will be taking place. Thanks, Catherine. Um, uh, the other sort of issue on work-life balance I just wanted to pick up is sort of health and safety considerations. Um, there are all sorts of uh, considerations arising from the way we work and the way that technology is changing that, uh, that we work. There is the issue of um, Blackberry's mobile devices requiring us to be always available, uh, stress considera considerations arising from that. You'll see from the slide that um, people are now claiming um, internet addiction, getting treatment for internet addiction. There are boot camps in China for internet addicts. This particular story uh, involves um, some internet addicts trying to break out of the boot camp, apparently not getting very far because they didn't take enough money for their getaway car. Um, there have been claims in the US, attempts in the US to claim that internet addiction is a disability, so someone who's dismissed for their use of the internet claimed actually this was a disability and they required treatment, not dismissal. Um, clearly, the more we have um, use, use of technology, RSI becomes more of a risk, particularly when people are using um, devices in their downtime to, to access Facebook. Um, and another real issue, I think, is, is um, isolation. There's been quite a lot of research on this now, how homeworking can increase isolation, which increases risk for stress and depression. Um, 
and simply increase computer usage generally. There's been a study recently that shows people who spend more than five hours a day at a computer are at an increased risk of depression and insomnia. That's probably most people in this room. It was probably most people in this room say so, uh, <laughs> um, There are obviously legal considerations for that, but also huge, just huge financial considerations. Absence in the workplace costs um, businesses a huge amount of money. In terms of the legal considerations, it's worth remembering employers have a duty to look after their employees' health and safety, a duty to provide a safe system of work for employees, and that extends to physical and mental health, um, and both at work and at, and at home if employees are working from home. So if you have people from working at home, you should be doing um, assessments of their setup at home to make sure it's safe. And employers will be liable if their employees suffer foreseeable injuries, and that includes physical injuries like RSI, but also mental psychological injuries like depression. Um, only if those injuries are reasonably foreseeable, but employers are expected to be vig vigilant for telltale signs of, of injury. So for psychological injuries, you'll be looking for things like um, increased absence levels, the employer having a previous history of mental health problems, that sort of thing. And it's, a, it's an important issue because actually if you do have employees, particularly with psychological injuries, it can be hugely expensive because you'll quite often have an employee who says they can't go back to work in the, in the same industry again and you'll be looking at paying you know, losses for a long, long period going forward. In practice, that means you do need to have measures in place to reduce the risk of physical and mental injuries um, to reflect the way that we work now. So it does mean health and safety assessments, but also support for employees, employees who are working long hours, um, always available, employees who are working from home or in a, um, are isolated for some reason. It's also worth bearing in mind that um, if an employee develops a serious medical condition, it's probably going to qualify as a disability for the purposes of the Equality Act. Um, which brings on a whole other level of obligation on, on employers. And if someone's disabled, you're into the arena of potentially having to make reasonable adjustments to accommodate them um, to counteract the effects of that disability. So you might be in the arena of having to make changes to their role, changing their hours, providing additional support for them. Um, and as I said, I think the issue of things like internet addiction, which causes a bit of a snigger, but I think it's it's something that's... You know, it's going up. It's going to go up the uh, agenda, and people are going to run the argument more and more. The um, the, the American Psychiatric Manual of, of uh, Psychological Conditions apparently has recently included internet addiction in uh, as a recognised mental health condition. So um, it's not a disability at the moment. It's not a recognised mental health condition here, as far as I understand it. But it's not impossible to imagine that it will be. Uh, there was a relatively recent study which said that social media are harder, addiction is harder to kick than an addiction to cigarettes and alcohol. Um, the rationale being apparently because it's more prevalent and it's seen as less of a, um, a painful, less damaging thing to indulge in than cigarettes and alcohol. We've already had some cases of employees being dis dismissed for um, excess internet usage. So there was a case called Grant and Ross, which I think is um, up on the slide against Mighty Property Services, where two employees were dismissed for excess internet usage. Um, and the uh, dismissal in that case was found to be unfair because the employer didn't have a clear enough policy prohibiting um, usage. Changing tax slightly, uh, another issue you just wanted to, to talk about uh, quickly is um, how the prevalence of technology in the, the workplace has sort of technical and security implications for employers. Mark, perhaps you could... 
um, coming on <clears throat> this? Yeah, the, um, obviously uh, the first thing is with regard to the employment contract and the obligations. There's a, a thing that makes me smile with developers is the appropriate use of the technology environment. What is the appropriate use? And usually there are obligations in the contract that, that, that as an employee uh, to an employer as to what you're supposed to be doing with the computing technology that you have. But that's really just a fig leaf. Um, I was arguing recently that you can have as much paperwork in place, but what you basically need is really three things to start off with. You need to basically have a very strong identity and access management policy and control system. So in simple terms, is you need to know who's using the system, where are the bad guys, where are the good guys. And so in identi identity management, registry of an active directory, knowing where your firewall is and who's actually going through the firewall is a good thing. The second thing is if the bad guys get in, what are, what are they going to do? What sort of damage are they going to do? And even good guys or mis mis misinformed people using the system inappropriately. So what we talk about there in the th second of three strategies is one of hardening the system. So encryption, locking things down in terms of domain management, that's good too. And the third thing is what I touched on earlier about know your trust zones. I would put money on it that very few people in this room will actually know where is the trust zones in your company. What networks are you allowed to use? Do you know where those networks go? Who's using that network? Do you actually know where the boundaries are? It then multiplies the problem that uh, Christopher was saying earlier, is if you then have multiple suppliers connecting with that system behind, those, uh, behind that firewall. So really the question is, you, if you're looking at ISO 27001, or if you're looking at your audit capabilities and can quote these things, I think the old version is SAS 70, but it's now ISA E3402. It's really the auditing processes that I'm talking about here. Is that the impact of technology is not just on the infrastructure that I just spoke about, the three strategies of hardening your infrastructure and tracking and monitoring it, but also it's understanding what your auditors are doing. A very good friend of mine recently did a lecture around this, and uh, in summary, just to finish off, he said that really be clear about your key risk uh, indicators. Where is your risk points in the network? Understand what that is, and how is that being reported to management? So I think what uh, Catherine was saying earlier about monitoring is really important. So it's complicated, it's complicated, but it is manageable. And I think really the last point is that understand who are you connecting with and what are your employees doing? Because a lot of the failures, the recent Google outage of the email system that went down, I think it was in December, just for 15 minutes or five minutes, that was just caused by Google not implementing a patch correctly into their email system. It was just a, a mistake. And so there's lots of misintentioned things, lots of things go on, and that could be not a security cyber attack like the US banks, but it's just understanding the consequences, understanding the risk implications of where you are. Do you understand risk in terms of technology? I guess that looks at um, the, the technology risks from a kind of a big picture point of view and the technology itself. Um, Catherine, perhaps you can talk about how you manage that on a kind of individual employee basis. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the biggest risks as from an employee perspective is probably on the t termination of employment and employees walking away with your data. And, you know, it goes back to Mark's point about knowing where your weak spots are, if you like. Um, you know, it's obviously becoming an e easier and easier to take data as it becomes electronic. And things like client lists are a prime example of that. 
particularly when you allow your employees to export client lists to LinkedIn and similar social networking sites. And you know, how do you go about protecting that information? How do you go about preventing employees from just walking off with that information? Unfortunately, in the UK, we certainly haven't had any definitive cases on that at the moment. There have been some um, pre-action disclosure type cases. Um, Hazen Ions is one case which I think we've got on a slide, um, in which the court was willing to entertain the possibility that you know, client list was confidential information and therefore protectable as such um, under the duty of confidence. Um, but that was at pre-action stage, and, and that involved um, an employee who had uh, um, transposed their employer's um, client list to LinkedIn, and the court was willing to entertain the possibility that that was confidential information and protectable. Um, there's also an argument that client lists uh, are protected under database rights, um, database rights require a substantial investment. So if you've just been creating a client list by or a contact list by linking into people as you've met them, query whether that's sufficient substantial investment. But where the company has compiled a client list over many years um, with details of pricing and that sort of thing, and then the employee just transfers that information to themselves, it may well be protectable as a, as a database um, and that's the case of um, Penwell Publishing and Ornstein. Um, uh, in that case, actually, it was a, a journalist who had his own contacts um, when he joined the company, and he actually added those to his employer's own contact list and didn't keep a separate list for himself. He then left the company and tried to argue that he could take that list of um, contacts with him because they were his contacts. And... Um, he didn't succeed in that case. Um, the court found that the, when he had put his contacts into the employer's list, he'd created a new database which, because he did that in the course of his employment, belonged to his employer. Um, so I guess the, the key takeaways there are you know, having an IT policy in place um, which sets out what you can and can't do with contacts and client lists, but also from an employer perspective, the key protection, relying on those kind of protections isn't that helpful and it's better to rely on things like restrictive covenants, so non-solicitation and non-dealing provisions in the contract of employment which prevent employees from contacting um, com uh, clients and contacts after the termination of employment. Um, I'm, I'm conscious of time so I would just like to finish up with sort of with, with one final point which is around the issue of does all this extra... Um, sort of flexibility and freedom for employees equate to sort of loss of control um, for employers. Mark, I don't know if there's anything you wanted to sort of chip in on yes, that. Yes, it does. Um, if I had to vote, I think we could put a vote actually to the room and ask everybody here, put your hand up, who thinks that you've got less less control over your data in your company because of the internet? Can I just ask? <laughs> Can't really, it's sort of 50-50 maybe. So there's... I, I agree with that point. I think uh, we just need to track, a bit, bit like the entry and exit thing, it's a revolving door of employees, it's a life cycle. And to keep to time, I think that's really the issue, is that know where your data is, know who's using the system. When they leave, or indeed when a company leaves the company, make sure you get all your data back. Make sure that you track what they've done, have some audit process in place if it's appropriate. Chris. Thank you. Um, and just quickly from a sort of um, employment law perspective um, one of the other sort of interesting aspects of this in terms of loss of control over employees is 
there is much more scope for employees to, to go rogue, as I would call it, where previously um, an employee might have uh, made a careless <coughs> remark at the water cooler. Now um, they, they might be doing it um, on an, in an electronic form, a semi-permanent or permanent electronic form. And we have on the slides there a kind of um, a sort of light-hearted example of that um, on the American Red Cross, Cross Twitter feed. Ryan found two more four-bottle packs of dogfish heads Midas touch beer. When we drink, we do it right. Um, that was a fairly sort of harmless example, but there have been plenty of cases um, where employees have done more damage to their employees' business and um, have been dismissed as a result. So um, just very quickly, um, case of Priest and Weatherspoon involved a pub, pub manager he was abused by customers, but then went um, onto Facebook to express her frustrations about it. And when one of the customer's daughters saw the post, um, the dismissal was, was um, she was dismissed. In that case, the dismissal was found to be fair because of the potential damage to uh, to the Weatherspoon's uh, business, and because the uh, post was available for everyone to see, not just the pub manager's Facebook friends. Um, compare that with the Smith, Smith and Trevor Housing Trust case um, where the person commented on a BBC News article about um, gay marriages and churches um, and was demoted when this came out um, and, and the demotion in that case was found to be unfair because the views in fact were quite moderately expressed and they were made outside working hours. Um, so it's going to be a question of, of degree, but it's something that you know, employers need to be alert to. There's much more scope, as I say, for employees to damage uh, an employer's reputation than, than previously, and I've certainly dealt with plenty of cases um, already um, where employees have made inappropriate comments about their bosses on, on Facebook. Um, but if you're going to take action, it's got to be a pro proportionate and appropriate in the circumstances. Um, there's an awful lot of other stuff we could say, but I am conscious of time, so I think we should, should um, wrap up there. Did you want? Thank you very much, Chris.